Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, New Books Network audience. I am your host today, Erica Monahan, and I have the great pleasure today to interview Jackson Lears about his new book called Animal Spirits from the American Pursuit of Vitality from Camp Meeting to Wall Street. Jackson Lears is the Board of Governors Distinguished Professor of History of, at Rutgers University and he is also editor-in-chief of the excellent journal Raritan, a quarterly review. He is the author of several books, his, which I'm going to read the titles because they give some sense of the expertise that he brings to the conversation today. His first monograph, published in 2009, was Rebirth of a Nation, The Making of Modern America, 1877 to 1920. He's also written Something for Nothing, Luck in America. He's written on um, ideas about abundance in American culture. His most recent book before Animal Spirits was called No Place of Grace, Anti-Modernism and the Transformation of American Culture, 1880 to 1920. And so it's a real honor to get to speak with him today. And today we are talking about animal spirits. The, my first question, as a tr- in traditional New Books Network style, however, is that we always like to ask, um, Jackson, please tell us ha- uh, how you became a historian. Happily, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I, I might mention parenthetically that the uh, No Place of Grace was actually my first book, not my most recent one before uh, Animal Spirits. But uh, that that's a minor. You you can alter that in in editing if you want. Uh, it's not not a big issue. Um, but yeah, how did I become a historian? I, I was I was coming of age in the in the middle and later sixties and. Um, I was confronting what a lot of uh, young men in my age category and s- social strata were doing, which was uh, wh- how to figure out alternatives to going into the uh, the world of business. In my case, it was a small business world. My father uh, owned a business, a, a furniture business in, in Annapolis, Maryland, and I was expected along with my brother to go in and, and uh, take over after graduating from college. But I was drawn toward literature. I was an English major at the University of Virginia, uh, and that was my real uh, preference and pleasure, uh, was exploring the world of, of uh, British and American literature I became frustrated by that because the the new criticism, as it was called, was regnant hegemonic at the time at the EVA, and that excluded consideration of history and biography from uh, reading literary texts. And the more I uh, thought about it, uh, the more I thought that you can't really understand literature without integrating history and and uh, and biography. 
uh, I was encouraged uh, to turn in this direction as well uh, by the political atmosphere at the time, which was shaped by the Vietnam War and my sense that uh, the way literature was taught at uh, the University of Virginia and most other universities isolated it from political and, and public concerns. So I began to take more and more history courses and I learned a lot more about the history of Vietnam among other places and about the uh, history of French and US uh, imperialism in that part of the world. So uh, that's what drew me into, into uh, history, but I didn't want to give up uh, literature altogether. So ultimately I became uh, involved in, in, in uh, cultural history as a way of sort of straddling the divide uh, between disciplines. And that's where I've stayed ever since. But what, what really uh, sort of confirmed me in my choice uh, and also in my choice of subjects uh, was uh, my experience as a naval officer uh, in this period, even though I was opposed to the Vietnam War, like most people in my part of the world, uh, I assumed that uh, if you were male and of a certain age, you would just have to go into the military at some point. So I chose in order uh, to pick what was the most congenial uh, option uh, and, and an al alternative to allowing myself to be drafted and giving myself some choice. So I, I uh, joined Naval ROTC and, uh, uh, and was commissioned an officer uh, with a top secret clearance uh, on a ship that, uh, that carried uh, nuclear weapons, even though they denied that they carried them. And uh, I was a cryptographer who had the responsibility for decrypting the message that might have launched those nuclear weapons in the in a uh, combat situation uh and i got to thinking very hard about that role uh and uh was told ultimately uh that i had to uh, have an interview with the chaplain to join what was called the sealed authenticator system uh the the uh, uh the the double uh, decryption of a message involved a team that was called the sealed authenticator system team. Uh, and in order to join this uh, team, you had to have an interview with the chaplain to see, as my department had told me, if I had any particular acts to grind for or against nuclear war. Now, in other words, they wanted a new, they wanted a neutral technocrat. They didn't want uh, a militarist ideologue, and they didn't want a pacifist. And I decided I couldn't be that neutral technocrat. And this is what got me into uh, reading about uh, modernity in the largest sense. Uh, and I had I didn't know it at the time, but I, I only later did I read Max Weber and the Frankfurt School and other theorists of modernity. Uh, but I was reading about uh, the rationalization, as Weber would call it, uh, of everyday life. Uh, that is the, uh, uh, the, the focus on, uh, again, uh, becoming a neutral technician uh, as the, uh, uh, the ultimate uh, embrace of modernity. And uh, so it was really while I was in the Navy that I began to examine the issues that shaped much of the rest of my uh, scholarly life, which was uh, not just the meanings of modernity, but the ways people uh, became discontent with it and figured out 
alternatives to it or tried to uh, in their everyday lives and in their larger intellectual lives. So uh, the, the question of modernity loomed very large for me at a, at a very personal level. Uh, to make a long story short, I did end up getting honorably discharged from the Navy as a conscientious objector. Uh, and that in, in, in turn shaped my uh, thinking about, uh, not only about war in subsequent years, but about uh, the history of American wars, uh, how we got into them, how we might have avoided them, how we might more profitably uh, take a different path in the future. So, uh, so that's what what shaped my larger career choices uh, as as I was uh, coming of age in the '60s and and uh, early 1970s. Thank you so much for that. Hearing this, um, this the this answer with you, of your personal experience really makes so much more poignant the passages you have in this book about the um you know sometimes chest thumping lead up to wars in american history and it also um makes um it makes kind of quite apparent the um some of the ways you talk about john maynard keys whom i'd like to ask you about later but um i i i so appreciate this interest in modernity I'm you know as you know I'm a historian of the Russian Empire where one of the um, abiding debates of the 19th century between westernizers and slavophiles was um the the slavophiles who were against the you know, modernizing west really um one of their biggest critiques was that neutral technocratic world of bureaucratic proceduralism and and can we find alternatives and so and while I think that um, well, while the Slavophiles, I, I would suggest, didn't find a workable alternative for the 20th and 21st centuries, try as they might have, the, um, the way in which, you know, feeling is a, a thread running through this book, um, it, it was is just so exciting to read about. And with that, let me get right to the book. And, and I want to ask you, I want to ask you about the title. What are animal feelings? Um, for me, it was this title was a little bit odd, I thought at first, but as I read through the book, you show that this is a term that has sustained use through time. And maybe more surprisingly, it was a positive term. So, you know, what are animal spirits and why did you write a book called Animal Spirits? Well, the immediate nudge was the the depression of 2008 and, and its aftermath. Uh, and the revival of John Maynard Keynes, the economist who had gone out of fashion during the neoliberal era, uh, the celebration of entrepreneurship led everyone to the uh, to the work of Joseph uh, Schumpeter uh, and his uh, a celebration of the entrepreneur and in what I discovered were fairly conventional terms in his in his writing uh, as, as a kind of a triumphant. Uh, super masculine male overcoming uh, resistance and and uh, uh, inertia and and making things happen. Uh, so Keynes was was suddenly rediscovered as as a behavioral economist uh, realized that uh, emotions and and uh, uh, consumer states of mind and investor states of mind. Uh, really mattered uh, in in uh, in creating and sustaining prosperity. And Keynes's great contribution 
in my view, uh, as I discovered, was uh, to emphasize that uh, investors were not entirely governed by uh, the kind of rational actor model of uh, uh, neoclassical economics. Uh, they, they were not uh, primarily moved by rational calculations regarding uh, the the uh, expected payoff from the investments they were making. Instead, uh, they were moved by something more mysterious and ambiguous, what Keynes called animal spirits, the spontaneous urge to action. I just know this is going to work. I, this just feels right. Uh, and this is not about route. Uh, rational calculation, obviously, uh, and it was a whole different view of, of how uh, capitalism is animated and, and uh, energized. Um, there was more to this concept, I realized, than contemporary behavioral economists made of it. Uh, there was a book by a couple of them uh, called Animal Spirits at the time, uh, but it attempted to shackle animal spirits to conventional neoclassical economics. And, and in fact, uh, the more I looked into the concept of animal spirits and the more I uh, looked into Keynes, I discovered, well, he was not a conventional economist in any sense of the term. He was really much more of a kind of uh, wide-ranging, interdisciplinary, modernist thinker. Uh, and uh, there was more, uh, as I say, to the concept of animal spirits uh, than uh, was commonly understood by his rehabilitators. Uh, but even more than Keynes himself understood, as I began to look into the cultural history uh, of the term, uh, I discovered there were multiple meanings of animal spirits and that the phrase itself had been uh, in use for centuries. Uh, and, it, and it had two basic meanings, I discovered. The first was personal. That is, the, that animal spirits were a term for the link between body and mind or, or body and soul. Uh, or another term, in other words, for, for vitality, for vital force uh, uh, in individuals. Uh, but there was also a cosmic meaning. Uh, and animal spirits also uh, could refer to the energy that animates the universe. Uh, rocks, trees, wolves, bears, humans. Uh, the kind of energy that went by the name of mana in uh, anthropologist terms when they looked at indigenous people's uh, concepts of the energy at the core of the world, uh, or in later eras uh, in, in uh, Jewish or Christian traditions, uh, spirit or God. Uh, but also in recent centuries, uh, I discovered uh, that another source of, of vital force uh, was capital. Uh, and uh, this uh, took me back to John Maynard Keynes, for whom capital is a kind of uh, vitalizing, energizing force. Uh, and uh, my former student, Gene McCarraher, in writing about what he calls the enchantments of mammon, has referred to capital as, uh, or capitalism rather, as the religion of modernity, uh, which we can boil down by focusing on uh, the notion of the etymological origins of credit, uh, which are rooted in credo, uh, I believe. So there is a kind of faith-based dimension uh, to capitalism that gets overlooked uh, with all of our uh, focus on uh, economic rationality and technocratic rationality. In some ways, this is a, 
<laughs> this is itself is a giant con game or scam, uh, is the papering over of the irrationality and unpredictability uh, of uh, capital movements uh, uh, with this rhetoric of, of, of uh, reason and often quantified reason at that. Uh, and and uh, uh, so it's very, uh, the, the book ends up being very much a, a, an, an exploration of the other and largely unexplored side of capitalism, the emotional history of capitalism, uh, which is, you know, not reducible uh, to quantitative uh, market research or investment analysis. Uh, just as Keynes said, uh, it's not about rational calculation, it's about uh, impulse. So uh, this is a, animal spirits became this huge subject <laughs> that threatened to overwhelm me at times. And I realized that it, the, the history of the phrase also linked up with uh, the popular history of uh, what you might call vitalism. That is the fascination with a life force uh, that took many forms and was often uh, explored by serious philosophers, but also by, uh, uh, by popular uh, self-help writers and other thinkers, uh, including uh, uh, all sorts of practitioners whom we might think of as cranks now, like mes uh, mesmerists and, and early positive thinkers and clairvoyants. Uh, they're all searching for the same kind of invisible force, uh, either in individuals or in the universe uh, as a whole. And the reverend, the, the problem with this, this uh, uh, vitalist quest, uh, as I discovered, uh, was that it, that it often uh, uh, developed a reverence for sheer raw power, uh, either personal power or cosmic power. Uh, the, the French philosopher uh, Henri Bergson called it the élan vital. Uh, and this élan vital, this life force, was at bottom amoral. Uh, it, it could be used for all kinds of purposes. And the dark side of it uh, was uh, not, not only a, uh, a racist tinge in many ways, uh, but also a focus even more intensely on uh, regeneration through violence and, and war. So the theme of regenerative war uh, is also in place in this book alongside the theme of, of uh, uh, irrational capitalism and the uh, uh, the kind of em emotional uh, lurchings uh, of the business cycle that parallel uh, the uh, uh, the monetary lurchings uh, from from uh, from rise to ruin and back again. Uh, so this is uh, this is how I ended up with this kind of. Uh, lumbering behemoth of a book, which attempts to pull together these uh, uh, these various strands of both animal spirits and and uh, popular vitalism. Thank you so much. Yes, there there are so many strands in this in this book. Is and I, you know, reading it, you take this story of vitalism, you weave it through histories of of religion, of science, medicine, economics, politics, literature, race, they they all kind of make a make a showing. And it, it's part of what makes it so stimulating. And, um, you know, to come back to this, to, to bring it back to economics, but um, before doing so thinking about how, um, what roles these other strands play in how 
economies um, develop and seem to behave right now, for example, um, Jill Lepore has written a bit about how Elon Musk has been so, and, and so many other um, Silicon Valley technocrat entrepreneurs are so are so inspired by scientific literature. Um, in the with before the Russian Revolution, we people talk about how Lenin was more inspired by the novel, the 19th century novel, What Is to Be Done, than by Marx himself, perhaps. And so, so in in the telling the story of eco economies. I think that you've really tapped into the importance of bringing in these other strands. But um, but to to go to my next question and um, and uh, one that has to do with the developments of economics, you show all these people being baffled by cycles as you know capitalism, for lack of a better term, emerges. And you and a very early one is the story of John Law, who is involved loses a lot in one of the very early bubbles in 1720, the South Sea Bubble. And and you talk about quoting a moment in the book. Someone writes, "It's a shame, really, that he did not place limits on his boundless imagination, for he has something great about him." One of Law's aristocratic um, patrons wrote this about him after his disgrace and, and, and said, continuing the quote, he has perished for too grand a conception of himself. And when I read that just in these weeks of Sam Bankman Freed's um, arrest and, and, and the story being part of his grand conception of effective altruism that will just make money um, for good, it, it kind of resonated. And I just wanted to ask you, um, I, maybe to comment a little bit about that, having having writ, written this history, um, or well, I I th I, uh, I think that's an, uh, a, a fascinating question, and I think there's certainly a a, a history of uh, American financiers, uh, both the uh, uh, confidence men and those who strove to be more legitimate. Uh, seeking uh, this kind of uh, grandiose conception of themselves uh, because there's always been something uh, in, in our work-obsessed Protestant culture, uh, there's been something suspicious about easy money, about quick money, uh, about over, overnight wealth, even as it's constantly longed for and dreamed of. Uh, it's also uh, mistrusted uh, as, as something that, you know, easy come, easy go, and, uh, uh, and it hasn't been earned somehow. So uh, people like Jay Gould in the 19th century and, and others who made a, a great deal of money from, uh, uh, from speculative uh, adventures in, in uh, the capital markets, uh, were were deeply distrusted, and they were often thought of as effeminate, uh, and uh, is what and 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 uh, not reliable sorts of people. Not the sort of uh, man you might want your daughter to marry. Uh, so figures like Rockefeller, John D. Senior, and and uh, Andrew Carnegie, uh, and others in the Gilded Age uh, of so-called robber barons, uh, as Matthew Jose Josephson uh, called them, uh, influentially, uh, these these people uh, really made their money from uh, doing deals cleverly, uh, from buying and selling enterprises at the at the right moment. Uh, certainly, that was the case with with uh, both Carnegie and and uh, 
Rockefeller, and it, and it was also the case uh, with Bill Gates, for example, in more recent times, uh, in in his uh, uh, selling of the uh, Microsoft operating system to uh, IBM, which at the time was you know the the uh, the big shot in the world of uh, computers in the 1980s, and uh, uh, and he, so every every IBM computer from the time. Uh, Bill Gates made this deal was going to contain uh, an MS-DOS operating system. And uh, this is what really made uh, Microsoft the giant that it became, Uh, not his technical genius, uh, but what but, but Gates, Carnegie and Rockefeller, and you can pick other examples, I'm sure all wanted to do was to associate themselves with productive industry and hard work uh, and something that really made a contribution uh, to society, technical innovation. Uh, and uh, Carnegie, of course, in the, in, in the steel industry uh, could, and, and Rockefeller and oil could both present themselves as, as sort of fundamental production-oriented capitalists, when, when really the, the, you know, their big money came from deal-making. And I think that's true of, uh, of Gates and uh, the others who've succeeded him. Uh, so guys like Sam Bankman-Fried are in the position of Jay Gould, and they've got to justify themselves even more. So they will, they will go out even, on, even farther out on a limb and talk about uh, money and altruism. But, uh, but there's this tendency to want to justify and explain oneself, even among uh, the, the wealthiest and most successful uh, capitalists, because uh, money itself is still not uh, regarded with, with uh, all, you know, unin, unin, uh, uninflected uh, enthusiasm. There's always a, a hint of doubt about where, where it come from, where it came from and how it was made and so on. Yeah. Um. Thank you. Next, I want to ask you about Adam Smith, who is um, who plays an important role in uh, your history. And I was struck um, where you talk about um, Adam Smith's maybe lesser known um, earlier book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, where um, Adam Smith, uh, you have a quote that I'll just read here. And he says, the rich divide with the poor the produce of all their improvements. They are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessities of life, which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants. And thus, without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of the society and afford the means to the multiplication of the species, end quote. Now, when I read about this redistribution um, in the in the quoted passage, this is not the invisible hand that I think we typically hear about when we talk about Adam Smith. So could you please explain that to me? I'll try. Uh, uh, Smith is uh, is a fascinating figure for a lot of reasons. And, and one of them is that he's much more complicated than his devotees among the apologists for laissez-faire. Uh, realize. Uh, He's complicated uh, partly. This is an expression, this quotation that you read, is an expression of his egalitarian sentiments, which were genuine and real. And also his assumption that uh, people in enterprise, enterprising uh, and successful uh, businessmen uh, were were, uh, 
operating in a in, within a network of uh, community and familial uh, and even larger public obligations that they weren't just autonomous, free-floating uh, individual wealth machines, uh, but that they had a, a network. Uh, they were connected to a network of, of obligations and responsibilities, uh, and and uh, Smith took that that network and its persistence for granted. Uh, so there's a certain naivete in this quote uh, and an assumption that uh, that rich people will always do the right thing and uh, and and will divide up their uh, their wealth. Uh, uh, evenly and, and justly. Uh, and uh, we can look at, at that as a kind of invincible innocence, I think, uh, and, a, and a sign of Smith's isolation from uh, everyday economic practices in, the, in university life uh, and in tutoring uh, rich men's sons. But he's also, uh, I think, uh, innocent in his... Uh, uh, lack of interest in finance capital. There's there's a very little attention paid to finance capitalism in in either certainly in the theory of moral sentiments, but also in in uh, the wealth of nations, uh, where the the chief impulse is all about steady. The chief impulse of of uh, wealth creation is all about the steady betterment of one's position, uh, and and uh, that I uh, it, it, so it's all about a, a you know. A, uh, a nation of shopkeepers, as as uh, uh, he's he's so often uh, described as as uh, evoking, and uh, I think uh, there is a huge element of truth to that. Uh, but that's not the whole story, and there are lots of things going on, even while he's writing the wealth of nations uh, in finance capital that uh, that are not about just the uh, the steady uh, betterment of oneself and one's family and one's community, but uh, uh, but are about you know getting rich very quickly overnight through any means possible, and and that's not in Smith. That's missing, uh, which is why I like to write about Daniel Defoe in this book as a as an alternative, who is not only a famous novelist, uh, but a but a frequent and and uh, usually feckless investor, uh, but who wrote very interesting things about credit. Uh, and it, its invisibility, its pervasiveness, and its absolute necessity to the conduct of economic life. Yeah, that um, it, the parts on, uh, about Defoe are great. I do um, recommend everyone read the book because we won't cover everything today. Um, but I, but next, I want to I want to ask you about um, what the this phrase that is the title of one of your chapters. Um, you have a chapter on the reconfiguration of value, and I, I wanted to ask you to um, tell us about this chapter and explain what you mean. What is this reconfiguration of value you are talking about, and and when it and when does it happen? Well, part of the reason I chose that phrase was was uh, to in, indicate that there was a broad shift, almost a reversal uh, of hierarchies, of um, moral hierarchies in in uh, uh, in late nineteenth century America. But I didn't want to use the Nietzschean phrase. Um, um, Oh, oh, what is it? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Senior moment here. Uh, the um, um, 
not the reconfiguration of value. It's a milder phrase. Well, it's it'll, it'll come back. Uh, the the uh, a will um, to power. So. No, no, it's it's uh, it's it's related to that, but um, uh, it's the the um, it implies a kind of a, a complete reversal of of uh, uh, values, and it's related to the uh, it. Uh, it's a it's a milder version of of uh, of, of Nietzsche. Anyway, uh, uh, I can I can look that up. <laughs> I do notice if, to interrupt. I notice on on page um, one sixty four, I'd marked this passage where you say where Nietzsche wrote, "Life itself is essentially appropriation, harm, the overpowering of that which is foreign and weak." suppression, cruelty, the imposition of one's own forms, annexation, and at the very least, at the very mildest, exploitation. Um, and Yes. Oh, I remember it now. <laughs> Transvaluation of value. That's Nietzsche's phrase. Yes. And, and uh, the quote you read is, of course, a perfect example of that, the celebration of raw power for its own sake. And that's the Nietzschean thread that also leads to... Uh, to the celebration of, of uh, regenerative war and also uh, um, just uh, raw power uh, and uh, and even fascism, uh, so that that's the uh, the ultimate expression of this reconfiguration of value is a transvaluation of, of of value, but it doesn't go that far in the in American culture and. Uh, uh, what I'm talking about is uh, a recognition that uh, forms of, of life, uh, human uh, and, uh, and non-human animals uh, included, uh, that had previously been thought of as inferior, uh, began to be <coughs> revalued and uh, revalued in... in uh, uh, in ways, for example, that involved uh, s studying animal consciousness and realizing that animals are not mere uh, automata, that they are, uh, that they are, in fact, they're capable of emotions, as, as uh, Darwin wrote at great length. Uh, they're, they're capable of playfulness. They're capable of all kinds of modes of consciousness that humans can't uh, even fully imagine and, uh, and have not given them adequate credit for. So part of this is a revaluation of animal uh, consciousness. It's, there's also what I call a kind of imperial primitivism uh, directed toward darker skinned peoples uh, of the world in the US as well, African-Americans uh, included. Uh, and a, by imperial primitivism, I mean, uh, it's from the point of view uh, of the dominant uh, race and class the you know the white privileged uh, uh, middle and upper classes uh, and it's from their point of view that there's there uh, they begin to sense there's something missing in their own lives some kind of uh, ease and grace uh, some comfort in one's own skin uh, and some vital energy and uh, and they find this in uh, the so-called lower races, they find it in children, they find it in, in uh, uh, even in criminals uh, sometimes. And they think, well, there's, in spite of our superiority to these beings, uh, there's something they have that we could really 
appropriate and use and that we need, in fact, that we are missing. And that is this, uh, this capacity for play and for spontaneous, uh, the expression of spontaneous vital energy. Uh, so this is what moves things toward uh, more and more uh, appreciation of uh, the physical body and what it's capable of uh, and, and why it's even capable of these things. Uh, so in recovering uh, animality and physicality and vitality more generally, uh, middle and upper class Americans, educated, respectable people uh, are, are recovering what they're, what they're, uh, what they feel might, might be lacking in them. And that is uh, uh, part of the move toward uh, the celebration of animal spirits as an end in themselves. So that you have figures like, <coughs> excuse me, the, the, uh, the popular minister, Henry Ward Beecher, uh, who is uh, uh accused but never convicted of uh, uh, committing adultery with his, with his best friend's wife and of scandalizing the whole congregation for the, the fashionable Brooklyn church that he's pastor of. Uh, and Beecher is condemned by a lot of guardians of respectable uh, morality, but at the same time uh, is celebrated as a, uh, by others, even if they dislike what he did or was accused of doing, uh, he's celebrated as a uh, <coughs> as an embodiment of of uh, a vital force. So there was what you might call a kind of vitalist defense of of uh, of, of Henry Ward Beecher and of and of uh, irregularities uh, in uh, sexual behavior uh, that that. Uh, uh, that he that he was inevitably associated with, but uh, what happens toward the end of the century is that a figure like Teddy Roosevelt arises and becomes a perfect uh, figure, a, perf a, a perfect instrument for assimilating uh, this kind of popular vitalism. <coughs> Excuse me to to. Uh, conventional values, conventional moral values in particular. So he becomes an advocate of what he calls the strenuous life, uh, which includes regeneration through combat, uh, imperial adventure abroad, but it's always uh, imperial adventure in his rhetoric, at least, in the service of, of uh, uh civilization itself and the uh, uh, the, the uh, vindication of <coughs> moral values that Americans all shared and the regeneration and revitalization of a masculinity that he felt had gone uh, tepid and soft. So uh, Roosevelt becomes a figure uh, who sort of assimilates uh, vitalism uh, to conventional uh, middle-class morality and to uh, imperial politics. Uh, and um, that's what, he plays a, a, a kind of a hinge role in the, in, the, uh, in the book for that reason. Yeah, um, 
Thank you. In the parts where you where you talk about Beach, um, Beecher and his scandal, um, you have a remark where um, one someone who knows him says, "I don't, I can't imagine why he isn't just breaking down of the pressure of his impending trial." And someone says he seems to just need to be on stage talking to a crowd. He does okay when he's doing that, as long as he's ranting to a, a crowd. And I just had to work to vanquish. Trump from my mind in those right, 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 in right. those passages, but but to, oh. to to Teddy Roosevelt and yeah, that how you talk about the imperial gaze as it turned back on itself, they started to think we might be sort of a feat, and and T Teddy Roosevelt's an, an antidote to that, and then you you know taking that a bit further you talk about how um there there was this maybe mutual earlier on a mutual well admiration between Teddy Roosevelt and Mussolini. And the yes. kind of this impulse to sport, the fascination with sport being associated with um, fascism. And I, I remember as a graduate student being a little bit disturbed um, ever, well, because I, I'm a little bit of a jock and I like doing things with people. But I remember um, as a graduate student, someone saying, you know, people doing this exercise in unison is fascist. And um <laughs> Right. That's but, a typical grad school remark. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you have this sentence in the book um, that I want to read you a quote and then and then ask you about it. Um, quote, in Europe, body worship, in Europe, body worship blended with imperial and eventually fascist agendas for revitalization. In the United States, it reinforced a belated bid for overseas empire and a cult of the strenuous life. This insistent physicality had a paradoxical side effect. It helped sustain and refashion the claims of the spirit. So maybe in the example of um, Teddy Roosevelt, you've already talked about that kind of valorization of the strenuous life, but how does it work that it refashions claims of the spirit? Well, I th I think uh, it's in, as as people looked looked at the body more and more. First of all, they they they're if they're middle or upper class, they're they're doing more and more work just seated at desks. They have more and more sedentary lives. Uh, they don't walk up the stairs anymore. They push a button and the elevator takes them, that kind of thing. And they talk about this. They say, we're not, we're not doing anything anymore. Uh, and so the question arises, not only uh, why can't we get more exercise, <laughs> but also uh, and 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 of course there there are ways to do that and this generates the enthusiasm for for football on college campuses for for boxing uh, among men but also for bicycle riding among both sexes and and uh, uh, other other forms of physical activity but there's also the question of what actually makes bodies go anyway what gives us the impulse there's the question uh this the, the impulse to action it gets back to question to Keynes's phrase the spontaneous impulse to action what's behind this spontaneity and that becomes more a more mysterious question and it does raise the question of spirit and if you think about animal spirits and the etymology of uh the word spirits it goes back to spiritu, which is breath. And so that's a physical process uh, that's tied up with uh, all sorts of spiritual meanings uh, at the same time. So, so what is it that uh, transports this, uh, uh, this vital energy throughout our bodies that gives us uh, the impulse and the desire uh, to run out on the football team and start 
grabbing people and pulling them to the ground and what you know this the uh, the kinds of uh, activist impulses uh, raise questions about where where they come from and how is it uh, that that uh, uh, that we want and need this kind of physical activity <coughs> and people like Roosevelt we're, we're not going to give up uh, a dualistic world of spirit and matter altogether they didn't want to reduce bodies to mere materiality or mere machines uh, they wanted to hang on to that spiritual dimension which Roosevelt would often you know often reduce to a moral dimension the dimension of character but still you couldn't see character you couldn't see morality in the way that you could see bulging muscles so I think that's that's how that that uh that, that's my exp explanation for the uh, uh, the growing fascination with the spirit, and that of course leads into the the, the early twentieth century vogue of positive thinking. Uh, you asked about Henry uh, Helen Williams, and this was an opportunity for women. And Williams was a a, a great example, uh, I think, because she was so active and for so long uh, to look at. Uh, what what is it that really makes us tick and how can we put our minds uh in the service of our larger selves you know how can we harness them to our uh to our largest ambitions and aims uh so so this is partly where where uh, uh where positive thinking comes from is that sense of where where does energy come from well it comes from the body but it also comes from the spirit or the soul or the mind yeah. Um, William James is another character that comes up quite a bit in this book. Um, who was he and why is he significant in this history? Well, I, I think of William James as the, uh, the great philosopher, <coughs> excuse me, of chance and uncertainty uh, in the Anglophone world in, uh, the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, because James was uh, uh, a, a connoisseur of maybe. He recoiled from certainty. And he uh, was concerned with, with what he called, uh, with, with building a new philosophical outlook that he called radical empiricism, which, um, which, all, which led, uh, I think, uh, many, um, in, in many directions, but it took it took all kinds of experience seriously, with sources of knowledge, uh, everything from uh, uh, hallucin hallucination and despair to uh, serious rational thought. So this is all about um, his uh, uh, his openness uh, to uh, vital experience, because he was nothing if not. Uh, a vitalist and a believer in the importance of the experiential basis of truth. What he called pragmatic, uh, the, the pragmatic method was the value, the, the, the judging of an idea on the basis of its actual consequences. And by consequences, he just, he didn't mean it's strict utility. He meant it's consequences for us in our lives. And that's why, uh, he celebrated what he called uh, the will to believe 
because uh, religious people, he often thought, had a more dramatic sense of the importance of their lives and what they did. So religion was a source of vitality, whether or not uh, it was literally true in a way that you could verify empirically. Uh, it was a source of vitality, and that gave it a kind of truth. Uh, that that couldn't be contested. Uh, that it was true. It was true at least for the individual, and uh, and that was what mattered to him. He was skeptical. He believed in positive thinking, in other words, uh, but he also recognized that positive thinking tended to gloss over uh, the darker dimensions of life, life's bitterer flavors, uh, and religion, at least in its more serious forms, did not. Uh, so while he was not a conventional believer, he was open to the claims of uh, religion as well as to the darker side uh, of everyday life. Hmm. That's why he's such an important figure. He contains multitudes. Contains multitudes and, and pragmatism seems like a, one of the better trends that America can hopefully take some pride in. And, um, and you know, speaking of kind of this, uh, well, positive thinking, for example, you know, that's something that's around now. And one thing that struck me as, as I read this, and um, in the 19th century, all of these, um, you know, you tell these stories of people, whether through positive thinking or hypnotism or mesmerism, kind of discovering tricks and magic to attain what they want. And it resonated resonated so much with the self-help world we live in today from, you know, the you know, this manifesting your vision board, maybe of the eighties or nineties right. from the secret to, to even today we have Andrew Huberman on his science lab, giving us a kind of science stuff up um, self-help in pursuit of what I sounds to me like vitality often. Um, and so, so much of this has, you know, happened, happened before, although we're historians. So we're committed to not seeing that. And we're always, we see that and we see the differences and thinking about ways that you know really shifts um one of the characters that he didn't start this but um you talk about this this Yale economist Irving Fisher um, um and in that section it seemed to me you're introducing a really new idea that doesn't we can't quite track and map this onto the 19th century and that's this world of big data you talk about um Shoshana Zuboff's surveillance capitalism um and so I, I wanted to ask you do i read you right there that um that this is kind of a change that comes along as people grapple with statistics but but yet there's a kind of some people are finding a vital vitalism in those as well um so i just wanted to ask you a little bit about that moment uh well yeah i think i think uh fisher's an important figure because he <clears throat> excuse me, he's obsessed with physical vitality and with the vitality of the nation. <clears throat> and he has all sorts of schemes and plans to tell people how to, how to live, how to exercise, uh, and, and uh, how to abstain from, from uh, stimulants and, and intoxicants um, and, and pursue physical health. But at the same time, uh, his vitality is very carefully uh, quantified and uh, he believes that pretty much anything can be quantified 
uh, and for that matter, monetized down to and including uh, a newborn baby. Uh, and he creates something of a mini scandal when he's quoted in the New York Times front page in 1910 of saying this sort of thing when out, outraged mothers write letters to the editor and so on. But, uh, but in fact, uh, this is a tendency <clears throat> that we see emerging and strengthening down to our own time uh, in, in, uh, in various ways. And the monetization of uh, everyday life has become pretty, uh, pretty much a routine. So we have a linkage between vitality and money again. Uh, and, and, and here again, uh, statistics, as, uh, as, as uh, Keynes like to say, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're great and necessary, uh, a great and necessary form of knowledge that allows us precise descriptions uh, of phenomena in the present, uh, but they can't be used uh, to interpret everything, including subjective experience, and they can't be uh, they can't be used to predict the future either. So he was a dissenter uh, from the more imperial claims of statistics that people like Irving Fisher uh, would make. Uh, but but Fisher's view uh, tended to to to, uh, uh, to run out. You you mentioned uh, in in one of your notes uh, Shoshana Zuboff's uh, book on surveillance capitalism and the uh, the amount of data that we're all generating in our everyday lives that are that is being recorded and used to uh, to sell things or try to sell things to us. And we all know this from our experience in using personal computers, but uh, uh, it seems to me uh, this is, uh, this is yet, yet another disturbing trend in the realm of big data, but, uh, um, but it is where the, the world we're increasingly living in, the quantified world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we could go on and on about that for sure. When I buy something, I don't want it to continue to ask me if I want to buy something. <laughs> um, but at any rate, um, okay, I want to, I know I can't keep you all day and you have to move on, but so maybe the last, um, I want to go to the epilogue and where you talk about um, what you, you talk about, you introduce Aldo Leopold, who became a wonderful environmentalist, and you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the energy of the nat natural worlds and the connections that we share with it in, in a way that I very much appreciated. Um, if that um that I take from it we we need to start but that maybe there is a legitimate place to really start start taking these um connections more seriously and especially given climate change as um the challenge of our age that people will acknowledge to different degrees but it's there um and you talk about Lamarckian and he Lamarck and he comes up um, throughout the book a bit and you in kind of he's usually placed in contra in in counter to Darwinism's natural selection. Um, but I but you I wanted to ask you and maybe tell us a little bit about this. Um, you know, is are we seeing a rehabilitation of Lamarckism? And is is it your message that there is a place to pay um, to maybe give a little more space to whatever they may be ideas about vitalism in our world today and going forward? I do think there is a revival of Lamarck going on uh, in various ways, uh, and particularly in the in the field of, of epigenetics, where geneticists are beginning to learn that they have to take. Uh, 
other things into account, uh, which include the uh, the actual environment of uh, the organism in uh, and its capacity to pass uh, environmental experiences on uh, to subsequent generations. So that, uh, as, as some researchers have discovered, um, a generation of people who were malnourished as a result of the, of the Second World War uh, might pass on uh, that experience to their children, even if the children themselves have been adequately nourished. Uh, and these kinds of uh, data have shown up uh, in various forms, ranging from the mic microcosm cosmic to the macrocosmic, like the example I just gave you. Uh, but this is an awareness that all sorts of things can be inherited and that, uh, and that organisms themselves play a role in their uh, in, in their inheritance uh, by constructing niches for themselves. So Lamarckism is also related to the, uh, the whole theory of, of uh, niche construction that Richard Lewontin and other biologists have, have developed in, in recent years, uh, recent decades, I should say. Uh, but more broadly than epigenetics, there is also an awareness, I think, in geology, uh, in botany and other fields of the scintillation at the heart of all matter that seems uh, under the older Cartesian uh, regime to, uh, to be inert, uh, but actually, um, even if we're talking about uh, metal or if we're, certainly if we're talking about wood uh, and other apparently solid materials, uh, they are actually uh, teeming uh, with movement. <laughs> and. Uh, this, this suggests to me, at least, a kind of broad uh, return of, of, uh, of vitalism to respectability. And I'm reminded of, of the anecdote that I told in my epilogue, uh, which was Aldo Leopold's encounter with the dying she-wolf uh, and, the, and the fierce green fire in her eyes that he suddenly uh, realized made him profoundly regret killing her and killing her pups as he had heedlessly done uh, and made him realize that he uh, as a uh, as an ecologist and an environmentalist uh, would have to learn not only like a she-wolf uh, to think like a she-wolf uh, but to think like a mountain and the whole notion of thinking like a mountain uh, entered the contemporary environmental movement and returns us to uh, the, dare I say, the wisdom of indigenous peoples uh, with whom I started this book because they're the original believers, Native Americans, uh, of, in animal spirits and in an animated universe. And that's the largest philosophical point that this book wants to make uh, is the legitimacy of that view that the universe is alive uh, and that there is something miraculous about that that we ignore at, at our peril. Well said. And I'm so glad that you wrote this book, that I got to read it, and then I got to speak with you about it today. So I, I'm very grateful for that. I know you have many things to go to. So 
um, I want to thank you for your time. But before I let you go, I want to ask you um, a traditional New Books Network final question, which is, what are you working on next? Right. Well, I, I, I appreciate that question. Uh, <clears throat> since I'm an old dude and I don't know how, how, how many more books I'll be able to write, but I, the next one is going to be, and appropriately enough, in part a retrospective. It's a collection of uh, essays, essays that I've written, uh, often as book reviews, sometimes as standalone essays for the nation, the New Republic, uh, the New York Times, the New York Review, the London Review, various uh, venues. Uh, and this is in keeping with my role as, you know, what I like to think of as a, as a public intellectual engaged with, uh, with politics and current affairs, as well as with uh, historical matters. I, I, I came to history uh, out of my engagement uh, with con the contemporary crisis over the Vietnam War in the late 1960s. And I remain engaged with the uh, uh, contemporary issues and how they uh, resonate uh, with their historical past, how they came into being, basically. So that's what these essays explore in, in many different subject areas. Uh, but there's also a, uh, an autobiographical essay that'll be in it that will uh, that, that will help explain uh, some of what I told you at the beginning of this interview uh, about how I came to be a historian and how I came in particular uh, to be engaged uh, with the issues of modernity and particularly uh, dissent from modernity and the dark side of modernity uh, through my experience uh, as a cryptographer on a uh, heavily armed naval ship that actually carried nuclear weapons. Uh, despite the official denials that they existed. So that's the book that, that is going to be out uh, in time for Christmas 2024. Uh, Yale Press is going to do it. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and and uh, so I, I, uh, I urge everybody to stay tuned if they're, uh, if they're interested. Uh, the, the book is called Conjurers, Cranks, Provincials, Antediluvians, the off-modern in American history. And by off-modern, I want to get away from the notion of anti-modern. These are not people who are absolutely opposed to modernity. They're, they're simply off the charts, the official charts. Uh, they don't fit in, uh, as we say, off-Broadway or off-kilter. Uh, these are people who are off-modern. They have one foot in the modern world, but uh, another one they're trying to plant somewhere else. And, uh, and they fall into these categories as cranks uh, or antediluvians, uh, but they're actually worth paying attention to because they have, from their idiosyncratic perspective, uh, they have a lot to tell us that uh, we don't normally hear uh, from the people who give us the official word about modernity. Uh, so I'm thinking about everybody from uh, uh, from William James to uh, 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 William Jennings Bryan and uh, uh, and and uh, lots of people in between. Well, that including, is, yeah. Oh, um, including who? 
including my friend John Maynard Keynes. Oh, super. Well, that is very much a book I look forward to in, um, to reading because, yes, it seems to me that I still have lots of questions about modernity, and it's good to know I'm not alone. Um, and with that, Jackson Lears, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a pleasure. And to our listening audience, thank you for listening.